What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. Today I have Julien Normand, who's Global Strategy Lead at Publicis Lyon in Singapore. And today we're going to talk about, I guess, a paper that Julien recently published on LinkedIn called The Silent Ascent of Super Light Buyers. Before we get into that, Julian, why don't you tell us what you actually do at Publicis Media and also why did you move to Singapore? Two questions to get you started. Hey, hi, Mark. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'll start first why I moved to Singapore. It was actually um, a long time ago, more than 10 years ago. Before that, I was working in international departments in media agencies. I'm part of the media family of strategists. I've always been working in media uh, agencies and always in international departments. And at some point, after eight years, it just felt like very weird to work in international departments from Paris. You know, it's not like the most English speaking or sometimes open to the world capital city. So I wanted to move abroad. I look pretty much uh, everywhere, Australia, Canada, and Singapore said yes first, pretty randomly. Never been there before, but so I took uh, three pieces of luggage took the plane and reached Singapore, thinking I would, I would stay there for like, you know, a couple of years. And it's been 10 years. I met my wife. I have two kids now here. And then what I did is I moved from like a classical account manager, account director role in media agencies to strategy relatively recently in my career, actually. I had the strategist title only in 2018, I think. Started with uh, Dell as a client, and then I moved to Publicis, and I'm working on Elion X GSK. I'm a global strategy lead, which means that I work across all the categories for my client. And my role essentially is to define frameworks, tools, ways of thinking to make sure that what we put out there is the best media plan we can to build strong brands and to deliver results. For someone who's not worked in a media agency or not worked closely with a media strategist, what are two or three of the main ways that you can personally contribute to your client's business? You know, you have different sort of strategists, even on the media agency side. But the main way we contribute to the client business is at some point you need someone that can organize different things that can be different creative assets that can be a portfolio of products, big global brand campaigns that are coming and you also have local campaigns. So you need someone to make sense of that. And because uh, in media agencies, we spend a lot of money, typically you want to do that right. So before you have some tactical specialist, a TV buyer or Facebook buyer performance team that is touching the budgets. You want to make sure that you, you've aligned with the client on what is the direction, what you really want to achieve, and then you can discuss with a more tactical team and do the job of buying. Would you say it's a creative role? I'm not sure because I would always compare myself so to my cousins in what we call creative agencies on, on our side, advertising agencies. It's definitely less creative. It kind of depends a lot on the client structure and who you're talking to on the client side. You can have a client that would be like a, a global media lead, but that could be a brand manager that could be more or less working together with the creative agencies. So it can be creative. It happened to me before, for instance, that my clients don't even have like a close relationship with the creative agency locally that might be just dropped, parachuted from global. And this is where you absolutely need to do that work of redefining the audience locally, maybe finding an insight to actually work your media plan around that and make sense of the different sort of creatives you have. So it can be creative. It doesn't have to. Uh, to me, what is extremely important, again, is like... Uh, you're dealing with so much budget from the client. You have so much impact on their marketing plan that you absolutely want that to be correctly allocated. To be simplistic, if we're going to compare the two E's of efficiency 
and effectiveness where sure they can work together. I feel personally that especially over the past decade, there's been an infatuation with efficiency. And especially when you're dealing with big budgets and a lot of people and a lot of assets, it's just like, I don't know, let the algorithms decide. Let's just do whatever seems fast and efficient. And obviously that means that a creative approach to media can get skipped over. What's your take? You know, you've been in this kind of role for a while now, what, five or six years. Have you seen any ebbs and flows between more of a focus on efficiency versus effectiveness? Is there an arm wrestle there? Yeah, absolutely. So I started to work like in 2004, right? So that was before digital was what it is. I've seen part of the advertising campaign as they were entirely almost effectiveness because performance doesn't really exist. And then I saw how performance took over. When I moved to Asia, it's almost like Asia leapfrog, you know, digital overall, digital adoption. I moved in 2012. And then I became very confused, actually, as a media professional to see that most of the discussions were becoming digital in some spaces where we didn't know really what we were doing. So actually, I wrote a, a sort of essay as well, which is called Digital Sunshine of the Spotless Mind which is talking about that. We forgot everything we were doing right just because digital was there and we were thinking, well, nothing's going to be the same anymore. So you don't need to learn from the past because everything is going to be performance and so on. I felt that and at some point I was very confused, but uh, that paper I mentioned is not anti-digital at all. I've been doing a lot of digital myself. It's just like the use of digital that we made as marketers. Why We wanted digital to be for a world where consumers just purchase and you, you just have to put like a signage before them so they buy your brand. It's way more complicated to build brands, to build memory structures and so on. And the end of my paper is actually quite positive because I think we've never been in a better place now. What happened in the past 10 years with how brands grow from Byron Sharp, let's be net Peter Field. Now we have a lot of evidence that really filters through most of the companies to explain that performance is good, but don't forget to build brands and come back to the creative point. I think we are in the best place now to give back the right place to creative because once you have the right media plans and the effectiveness and the performance, this is where you're actually going to compete on the creativity. Yeah, there was definitely, I think it's at least a decade, but you know, shout outs to the digital publishers and platforms for being good at selling things like last click attribution, but it really had people focusing on the immediate and obvious things that they could measure. And I think underlying all of that is just a general skepticism or maybe even disgust with advertising and wastage, even though a lot of the research says you are going to waste money and you're not going to know which parts of the money you're wasting, but you kind of need to, to have a conspicuous, spectacular brand presence that you can then use later, well, when someone's in the act of purchasing, to get them to buy. It's kind of interesting. Let's talk about the thing you recently published, The Silent Ascent of Super Light Buyers. Why did you write this? So I came across an academic paper last year, which was called Quantifying the Target Market for Advertisers. So it's a 16 pages document and it kind of blew my mind. It's looking at buying panels or households that are followed over five years, meaning that we know what they buy, what they don't and how many times. And it's published by the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. So it's the same family as Byron Sharp and How Brands Grow and so on. But it's a bit like How Brands Grow on steroids in the sense that 
when you look at five years, every sort of learning from our brands grow is much bigger and more like in your face and eye-opening. I wanted to do something with that paper when I was over. And the, the funny thing is like a couple of days later, after reading it, uh, our global client wrote to us in an email called, uh, here's a boring article if you have no life. And I was like, well, thank you. I've read that on a Friday night. Uh, that's the first thing. And then I realized that actually I didn't uh, recollect as much as I wanted to. Because, you know, we read so many stuff. I couldn't like uh, really articulate everything, all the implication I've read like a couple of days before. And this is when I thought, well, I get notes for myself and quickly it became like, no, I want those notes to engage someone that typically doesn't read uh, academic paper, but also doesn't read particularly article and these sort of things. Okay. And so just to cite the paper, clearly it's called Quantifying the Target Market for Advertisers. It's by Charles Graham and Rachel Kennedy, who analyzed 55 brands in 12 CPG categories and, and their data over five years. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So it's centered on uh, CPG. As you said, 12 categories, 55 brands. These brands are selected because they're stationary, meaning that they would sell the same numbers year over year. So after five years, they sold basically five times what they sold in, in the first year. And what's really interesting is to, to understand how this growth from one year to five uh, works out differently. Is it from penetration? Is it from uh, average purchase frequency? And this is what the, the paper is going through. Yeah. And, and so what I understand what you're writing about and what the paper goes into, I've not read the paper, is it's really building on what Vima Schneider's calls the banana chart or something. So how brands grow in a lot of research, you basically have, for a lot of mainstream brands, there isn't a lot of loyalty. So loyal buyers will buy a chunk of it, but it's really people who only buy you every now and then. And what this paper does and what you're trying to point out is that you've even got to think of the people who hardly ever buy it, maybe every five years, right? Exactly. So, you know, one of the things that um, Harbrand's role does pretty well is debunk the Pareto ratio, the 80-20, meaning that 20% of your heavy buyers would supposedly be responsible for 80% of your sales. And it's been debunked a long time ago. It was not initially sought for marketing at all. It was in Italy, it was related to properties, like 20% of the landlords would own 80% of the property or something. So it was not like meant for marketing. And what they show is like these 20% heavy buyers, typically they're responsible for about half of your sales, which is a lot. Don't get me wrong, right? It's important. But heavy buyers, typically the one the most likely to buy from you again. So they don't need like this extra attention. And how Brand Grow shows is uh, the importance of light buyers. But it's all the analysis is made over one year. And what I picked from that paper is the term super light buyers is not something I made up. It's actually in the paper. Sometimes it's ultra light buyers. But I thought it was the way to make the paper actually a bit more epic and grandiose because super light really evokes something and yeah so the longer you look at the, the lighter buyers and there is another paper called unbearable lightness of buying which might be the best research paper ever that is about the same thing and so the main idea is that if you only study and target people who bought the category over 12 months you're ignoring about a quarter of the potential buyers so it's better to look and study but then target people who might buy it over five years, is that right? Yeah, the first thing is like your category is much bigger than you think, right? We are used to look, depending on the clients, on sales during a quarter, during a year, and then you have a reset. You forget like how many people you 
you reach and how many boats and so on. But what happens is like new buyers continue to come to the category, continue to grow. And exactly as you said, if you look at how many people bought over one year, you actually forget a lot of people, the super light buyers. And it means that you have a false representation of your consumer. And I think we see that very often. A marketer thinking that, well, they have um, a relatively low penetration, but people like them and continue to buy a lot. And this is showing that it's not happening. And it's related to another law, which is called a double jeopardy law, which states, and it's valid in most categories and across the world and so on. It's like if you're a small brand, you have a smaller penetration, you have fewer buyers, but those buyers are slightly less loyal. So once a marketer or someone in an agency accepts that their category has a lot more buyers than they think, and they realize that focusing on buyers and how they're targeting them and maybe researching them based on the past 12 months is missing something. What are practical implications from this? Because I'm sure a lot of people are like, what do you mean? i got to investigate and target people who might buy it over a five-year period? I mean, isn't that redundant because we're going to be advertising anyway, so each year we'll somehow reach those people? Help me understand the practical application of this. So you started the discussion by talking about effectiveness and performance. The implication of that paper, not drastically different from what you would understand from how brands grow. It's like beating that drum again, but it's showing the importance of road reach, for instance, right? And I think that's something we turn into dogma as media agencies. Oh, you, you need to reach all the category buyers. You need to achieve mass reach and so on. We don't really explain why. But this paper really explains why, because you have so many light buyers that you actually typically don't nudge if you don't do mass reach. They're responsible for 40% of your sales over five years are coming from super light buyers. And let's be clear on the definition of super light buyers. There are people who bought your brand over five years, maximum five times. So once a year, right? Or less. And they are 77% in average of your buyers over five years. So all categories and all brands are spectacularly lighter than you would expect. And concretely, it means that to maintain your sales, you actually always need mass reach. That explains why, you know, during recession, we see all those charts of uh, what happens when you go dark and then slowly it falls down. It means that those super light buyers that are not super familiar with your category, that have a relatively bad memory structure about your brands and maybe possibly about the category, they don't see your message anymore. And then you don't nudge them enough to actually buy again from you. So there's probably a few very practical applications just within the business itself, which could be if you can prove, justify that the market is much bigger than you think it is over, over a five-year period. That can affect how the business sets goals, how it sets marketing budgets, how it allocates resources. And then from a media point of view, perhaps you need to be more aggressive and reach more people than you think more of the time. Is that a way to interpret what you just said? From a media point of view, yes, you need to reach as many people as you can within your category. And the paper gives some keys to actually calculate the size of your category for your own category. I don't go there with my slides. The paper also gives you the example, for instance, of a Persil, the detergent in the UK. So on a quarterly basis, they sell their product to 1.4 million households in a quarter. And if you do the calculation, it means that over five years to just maintain their level of sales, not even like increasing over five years, they need to sell to 17 million households, which is pretty much the size of the UK. 
So you need a level of reach that is, again, bigger than what you would expect just to maintain your sales. And that's why it's interesting that the paper is focusing on stationary brands, meaning that they actually don't grow in, in year five compared to year one. It's because it shows you that just to maintain your sales, you need to go broad. And that gives some fresh perspective as well, I think, on how to assess the success of advertising. You know, typically, we tend to look at, at the sales and if it's flat, we're like, there's something that is not working with my ads. I, I probably need to change the copy or my media is wrong. And actually, there is a lot of heavy lifting that is happening with the super light barriers just for you to maintain your market share. I want to ask you about a few of the media concepts that you're mentioning as well, just for people who are newish to media or just might not be as involved with it. How do you work out reach? How do you project the reach? How do you work out how much reach a brand needs to have? If we're talking about the buying side of it, that's your question. Depending on the, the media you buy, you would always need to figure this out. And the thing with traditional media is that typically it was part of the way you buy, like TV would give you a reach on a precise universe. And new platforms like massive platforms like Facebook and YouTube, they have eventually integrated that as well in their platform. So you know the kind of reach you will have. And for the rest, you can always kind of figure it out based on the eyeballs you would get and the size of the population of the platform. And then ideally, you would also have some sort of tool that allows you to get some combined reach because what you what's the most important is not the reach per platform, but the reach of your entire campaign. And uh, how brands grow and, and the Allenberg Bass Institute would tell you is that reach you want it to spread out through the year as opposed to stack up at one moment, exact, exactly because you have super light buyers and you don't know when they're going to buy. And then which platforms, which channels do you find yourself uh, selecting most if the goal is mass reach? Well, that would depend on the market, but I think... Uh, at the moment, it's pretty clear that TV is declining, but it's still the platform that gives you the most reach in most markets. Because we're in 2023 and we have like more, uh, you know, advanced knowledge of how media uh, are working. It's not all about reach. Because Karen Nelson-Field, the specialist of attention, would tell you as well that it's not because you buy an opportunity to see that it's actually seen. And it turns out that TV, for instance, tends to grab a lot of attention when other platforms might not grab as well. So you need to look at this as well. But thankfully, nowadays, you do have a lot of digital platforms that can deliver that. Now you have a very diverse way to actually combine videos together and find different viewing uh, opportunities. If you think about the past two years, are there channels or platforms that you're buying more of and also less of? I think it's almost like uh, these days we're coming back to include more traditional platforms. It's always a pendulum, right? So at some point it was all about TV. Digital sort of took over and we did too much digital. And I think the industry is looking at a more balanced mix with TV is now digital. Anyway, everything is kind of digital. Outdoor is digital. You know, radio uh, gets a lot of reach, for instance, in the US as well and can entirely be there as a, as a second or third media in a plan, for instance. So yeah, the best is just to look at what you want to achieve and define the best mix from there. When you think about your own purchasing behavior, what are you a super light buyer of? It's important to understand that everyone is a super light buyer in many categories. So just look at your cupboard, go to your kitchen. What is behind in your fridge? Is it like an old jar of pesto? or cornflakes that you bought like, you know, six months ago and didn't finish. Yeah, I do that as well. I have some old frozen veggie in my freezer at the moment that I probably need to swallow. 
Yes, I was trying to think about it. I guess laptops, I'd be a super light buyer of a laptop. Pens, I might buy a bunch every year or so and keep them around and then new pens turn up. A microphone, a camera, an iPhone, I'm a super light buyer of all those things. We're probably surrounded more by the things that we're light buyers of than super light buyers of than the things that we're heavy buyers of. So, and the paper and my slides are entirely focused on CPG categories, right? And you do have some differences even in CPG. You have some categories that are both often like uh, biscuits to space detergents, but you also have CPG products that are not bought very often, like razors, for instance. Everybody has a razor, but because you buy like typically 10 at once, uh, you don't buy them very often. But even based on the, on the frequency purchase in the category, you would tend to be super light buyers of that category as well. Ah, uh, smart person. Hey, pull your mind out of those timesheets for a second and take a look at the Sweathead website. We have three membership levels, starter mode, flight mode, and beast mode. They give you access to a variety of strategy masterclasses, conferences, accelerators, and online learning, some of which has been known to make people cry because they like it, they like it, they feel seen. Make the most of your mind this year or any year and visit www.sweathead.com today. Now back to the interview. Do, 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 do. We've established that something like 41% of sales over five years are made by super light buyers. And one of the points in the research, one of the points that you make is that when you look at, I guess, a, a market segmentation, that those buyers would often be put in a group of non-buyers, which kind of misses the point. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that would help us understand why that's a problem? Yeah, well, I think so, because it's always the same problem that marketers tend to think of their brand as a unique and beautiful snowflake. It's the same on agency side. When you work on a brand like uh, eight, 12 hours a day, you think it's beautiful and, and you, you stop thinking of the fact that people don't know so much about it, right? Because they become non-buyers in your surveys, well, you probably need to make sure that you still interview them to understand how they consume the categories and how they see your brand. And again, like many things from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, actually serving creativity, right? You need to think of a buyer that doesn't care about your brand. You need to make sure that you don't restart every year what you've been doing the year before because there are very fragile memory structures and you need to grab their attention because they might not have been in contact with your category for the past three years. Typically, you need to nudge the category. You need to nudge about your product. The way it serves creativity is like you need to grab attention. And what I write in the slides is like, uh, it's okay to have fun with your brand. As long as you have the product and the distinctive assets that are prominent in the ad, you can have fun because you're going to grab attention. Yeah, there's a real appeal to pragmatism with this paper and a lot of the writing in this area. I think a lot of marketers, especially marketers who are into brand, and not all marketers are into brand, but the marketers who are into brand, they can get distracted by their own emotional connection to their own brand. Like they live it, they wear it, or they eat it. I remember working on a pretty well-known yogurt brand about 10 years ago, and there was a slide presented about how people ate three to four other yogurt brands and it seemed to really hurt feelings to the point where that slide to me, I don't know if it actually started to disappear from presentations, but it became a bit of a black sheep and people didn't want to 
really acknowledge it because what people wanted to talk about was loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. And I feel like a lot of this research points a finger in the eye of loyalty and says, maybe, maybe, but not useful to focus on too much. And what you really need to do is what you said, create campaigns that get attention, be consistent with the way you bring the brand to life with a distinctive brand asset. So, logos, sounds, maybe smells, mascots, etc. And then stay in front of people as much as you can. In the US, I'm based in the US, but I do feel that Geico Insurance, Progressive Insurance, a lot of the insurance brands do this really, really well. I think better than the telco brands, to be honest, and they're probably two of the biggest spenders and two categories that are most frequently in front of us. But I think Geico and Progressive are exceptional at, at this. In the region that you're in, which brands do you think are doing a really good job of acknowledging this research, or at least from what you can tell from the outside and living the implications? I'm not sure. You know, you always have like a big FMCG brands that have been following and sponsoring the Albeck Bass Institute for like a decade, and they do that very well, you know, the likes of PNG and Unilever. But maybe what surprised me more in the region and in Singapore, for instance, is like e-commerce platforms, for instance, and all the new economy. You know, you wouldn't necessarily recommend their approach to marketing and business because they just blow a lot of cash and they're not profitable. But what I find very interesting is how they overplayed distinctive assets like um, Food Panda, for instance, because I think they feel very directly their competition with uh, with Deliveroo. And in that case, they are in search of short-term results, but they also understood how to overbrand everything. And uh, Food Panda, for instance, just created like a, a mascot and they have their own color codes. And very progressively, actually, they adopt all those codes. Lazada as well is a super branded. Shopee, which is another massive e-commerce player, they have their own song, which is based on uh, Baby Shark. And this is exactly the learnings, you know, of the uh, Underbass Bass Institute. Like you, you hear Baby Shark that you know from somewhere with the Shopee. It works very well. Did you use the word overbrand? And if so, what do you mean by that? It's making all your brand assets very prominent. All the color codes. I mean, it's just coding, right? In a good way. Yeah, it's something like I speak with pretty senior strategy leaders and agency leaders and leaders of brands and everyone's kind of feeling a little bit burnt out, like what's going on with the world. And then you throw in research, which to a lot of them is is recent and new and confusing. Like they're trying to keep up with the algorithms on TikTok when they're like, oh, we haven't even got a handle on YouTube yet. There's a lot of that. And I, for me, the headline, the way I understand this research, I'm obviously not an academic. Don't use that as a way to poke fun at me, people. But to me, the headline is this, advertising's never been more advertising. I feel like the past 10, 15 years, a lot of us got distracted, a lot of shiny new objects, but the principles that I believe to be true, the ones that Julian's been talking about today, I feel like it makes our job not easier, but there's a sense of liberation. If you accept the first principles, get your distinctive brand assets in place, turn up in front of a lot of people a lot of the time as much as you can, emotional advertising, fame, hungry advertising campaigns, and maybe... Don't spend so much time on all the little bitty stuff that people won't see that keeps you busy and drives you insane. Then if you accept those first principles and you can bring a sense of discipline and stewardship to it, the opportunity is to be super creative. For me, that's almost a return to how things were a while ago before everybody had a, a nephew or a niece who could grab stock photo images and put a social post together. Absolutely, right? I think in the 60s, Howard Gossett something like the buying of time and space 
is not the taking out of a hunting license of people preserve, it's the renting of a stage on which to perform. And of course, that resonates to me because I do buy time and space and I do want to use that frame to actually perform. And it's all the concept of fame developed by Paul Feldwick as well. I think, yeah, we are kind of coming back to that as a very mainstream way of thinking of advertising. We're probably all convinced in agencies and many clients as well. And the reason why I built that deck as well is because not everyone lives in you know, in London or in New York or in Australia, where those principles start to really filter through. But other markets that are not as mature in terms of marketing need to read this definitely. And it's funny, you know, there are people I've interviewed on this podcast who work in creative departments. I mean, I was talking with Aisha Haykim from 72 and Sunny recently, also Benice Chow. And I feel like there's been around for a while. I felt this a while ago, which is why I do Sweathead and I'm not working in agencies anymore. But I do feel like even the younger generation right now, they're feeling quite blocked when it comes to maybe their own companies, which is not what either of the two people that I mentioned said, but feeling quite blocked when it comes to doing really creative work, that clients are too logical, conservative, they want to be very didactic and very talky. Is what to think in the ad versus showy. Are you seeing this? Has there been any shift, good or, or not good, in recent years for you? I want to see the glass half full on this. I think the worst is behind us. I really lived some years where I was very confused about what we are doing, like micro-targeting, and it seemed to be normal to most of the people around me. Now, we have so much evidence, so much um, you know, success as well from big companies that make the headline. One that goes around, for instance, is Airbnb. Uh, how they move from performance to brand and find that sort of uh, balance. So I think we have more and more bullets to actually have that discussion with clients. And it's not easy, but I think we're on a good way. Yeah, there was that whole segment of one concept that floated around for a while, like because you can get cookies on people and have thousands of messages out there, but that's not how you build a brand. What about smaller brands and newer brands? How can they use this kind of research when they might be just getting on their feet? As often, it's tough to be a small brand. You tend to be penalized. It's true as well over five years. And actually, what the paper shows is like you tend to be penalized compared to big brands a bit more, meaning that you have a low penetration, but you, you even have a lower purchase frequency or loyalty. But once you're aware of that and you understand why you need to reach more brand buyers, you can avoid that trap. I think many small brands think like, oh, I'm a niche and I'm going to increase my loyalty on this person currently buying for me. This is the best thing I can do. And very clearly it shows that no, it's not the best thing you can do. And it's not only about advertising, right? You need to build some products that can appeal to more purchase occasion, more buyers. You need probably to find a better balance between the performance and the brand as well. When it comes to small brand, we all tend to trick ourselves by still thinking in terms of big media. But if you cannot buy a TV, you can still find ways to increase your reach with whatever you can afford. And I think that's the way to go. To sort of paraphrase you back to you, if you're a small brand or maybe even a new brand, it still helps to have a broad mindset, even if you can't afford the media buy to be broad, but to set up the way that you position yourself, your messaging, your product range with the intention of 
going broad if you want to be mass and big. Is that correct? Yes. And be consistent. Understand that it's not a few people always buying from you. It's probably EV category buyers that are buying you because you're there on the shelf. Be consistent so they can find you the next time. They can remember you and be consistent with your advertising to nudge them back. I want to get you to explain the double jeopardy law in a second, but the kind of opposite of that is the top of anything gets most of the opportunities and most of the resources, even when it comes to humans, right? But like the rich get all the opportunities. If you're a top venture capital company, you're going to get all the deal flow. The law of natural monopoly, maybe that's how they call it in marketing. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, it's no wonder that these brands are big because they have a higher mental availability. So you think of them more easily and they are easier to find on shelves which is always something we tend to underestimate when we work in advertising. But just the way to be physically available is like extremely important. This is how you discover many brands. The fact of buying itself is contributing so much to your memory structures, which is very much the problem with super light buying. Is like you're not building those memory structures from your product, from the buying act itself. All right. Well, an accompanying idea is the double jeopardy law. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, so double jeopardy law, it means that the bigger brands are reaching more people on a given period and they are also selected more often. So if you're a small brand, not only you're penalized because you have a lower penetration, but you are penalized because the few buyers you have, they buy from you a bit less often, right? And the reason is probably they can't even find you in many cases. They don't think of you, they think of you less. And then if they do, they might just not find you because, well, you're small and you're less distributed, most likely. So it's very cyclical and it might feel like, a, well, you're, you're doomed. You're small, you're doomed. No, you're not. You can still grow, maybe slowly, but you can grow, well, from increasing your physical availability. And then mass switch would increase your mental availability. And what you need to be very careful of is the overlap of both. Because what can happen is like you would advertise somewhere you're not available physically. And then, well, this is not the right way. Yeah, look, there are pretty smart operators out there who launch brands and the whole goal is to disrupt the category to try to get a few percentage points of it and then to get acquired. So, <laughs> there's also... That did prove quite effective as a strategy, yeah. So, there is a chunk of the deck or the article that you put on LinkedIn that starts to get pretty heavy into numbers in a way that I would have to like, you know, spend 10 minutes going through some of the slides. The part about quadrants, is that useful to talk about? So it's too deep to go into, but the interesting thing is like those 12 categories we mentioned at the beginning on CPG, you can uh, divide them into four quadrants based on their penetration and their average purchase frequency. The reason those two parameters are chosen is like Andrew Ehrenberg, it tells you pretty much everything about a purchase behavior. And I would recommend more like if you're looking to see how your particular brand would behave, look at those quadrants because you would know from the average purchase frequency where you stand. And the learnings are quite different, like the dynamics of growth, whether you grow from penetration or from frequency over five years would differ a bit. And then the implications as well. I'm going to read out the quadrants because, you know, the people listening to this at this point are the people who can handle and are interested in the full nerdery. So, two by two, top left, we have high category purchase frequency and low category penetration. We're talking dog foods or nappies. To the right of that, we have high category penetration and high category purchase frequency. We've got toothpaste, detergent, biscuits. Bottom left quadrant, we have low category purchase frequency and low category penetration. 
chocolate-coated ice cream and men's razors. And bottom right quadrant, we have high-category penetration and low-category purchase frequency. We have deodorants, shampoos, and moisturizers. And that essentially becomes a typology, right? Like, uh, which allow which what you were saying is that then allows you to assume slightly different implications and then you can approach the brand and the media by slightly differently. Is that correct? And it's very structural, right? Well, biscuits would be bought very often anyway. What's interesting to look at as well is like the behavior of the category and the behavior of brands. All those brands in the survey are big brands already, but all the brands would grow a lot from penetration. And actually in those four quadrants, you just have one that is growing faster from frequency than from penetration is the one that is called high penetration, high frequency, the biscuits and the detergent, because everyone is in the category already and you have a lot of repeat purchase. So brands would actually grow from increasing uh, their frequency. And this is where as a brand, what you want to do is to nudge on your brand and to make sure that you're still part of that repertoire and you're selected a bit more. And it would be a very different strategy is let's say your men's razor and people don't buy you very often. So they lose the memory structure of the, of the category. Like they don't know how many blades you have in a razor these days because the last one they bought was like, you know, three, four, five years ago. So you might need to nudge them back into the category and especially about your brand. Actually, I know we've allowed a bit of jargon to go through this, but I usually like to get people to define the jargon. Could you define penetration and also talk a little bit about frequency? Your penetration would be how many households in the population bought your product. For instance, the high category penetration, the category has 90% penetration. We're talking about toothpaste. In a year, 90% of the population would buy toothpaste, most likely, of the households. And when it comes to five years, still for this quadrant, is a... Uh, 98% of the household. And the frequency, here we are talking about average purchase frequency in a given period. Well, how many times you, the, these households bought the product? And coming back to my example of the high category penetration, like toothpaste, detergent, and biscuits, it can be 10 times per year, and it becomes 48 times in five years. So as I was saying, it's growing more from the frequency that from the penetration. But when you talk about like a men's razor, the penetration would be more like 28% for the category itself in a year, up to 59% in five years. But that's much lower. And the frequency is as well much lower because it's like between two and six times in a year or five. Okay, so it's purchase frequency. And what about media frequency? How do you work that out? Explain the concept, actually, and then tell me how you work it out. So the media frequency is actually very similar. You're going to open a nice discussion about averages and distributions. Media frequency is how many times you've been exposed to one campaign, while the reach, very much like the penetration, is how many people in a given audience, population, have been exposed once. And what's very interesting is like, be it like the average frequency of purchase of the average frequency of seeing your campaign is always very misleading. You know, we say that they're hiding more than what they reveal. And that's the interest of another kind of chart that you mentioned that the banana chart, the negative binomial distribution, which shows that behind this average, be it for TV exposure or for the number of times you actually buy a product, most of the people will actually see you once or buy you once, and then a bit less for the second time, a bit less for the third time, and then you have a long tail of high frequency. Meaning that if your average frequency is six of purchase, you don't have like a, you know, a nice bell curve centered around six. You still have most people who bought you once, and it turns out that you have many people who bought you maybe 10, 12 times, and this is how you average to six. 
Very cool. All right. It's good to get a media 101 breakdown there. So I guess the headline from the research and then what you've put together in, in your article essay, The Silent Ascent of Super Light Buyers, is think and act broad, right? It's think and act broad at the heart of all of this. Plan for a super light world where people don't really care about your brands and they don't know so much. They don't see you so often. So everything you put out there, just someone who are not aware. And that's just a, a way to be pragmatic about marketing and about advertising. I love it. Final question for you. What excites you the most or what fulfills you the most when it comes to working in a media agency? It's going to look a bit mercantile, but actually the most rewarding experience I've had started when I was working with Ubisoft. Actually, I was a client at that point of time. And this was the first role I had where I was actually working very closely with sales. And I was a media guy still, right? And it's so great when you work very hard on a marketing plan all together with your colleagues from PR, from the digital team and so on. And then you see the results when you launch a game and it's actually working. You sold more than last year. And this is where you say, well, maybe I did something right. And today it's a bit similar on the agency side, but I want my client to share this kind of details with me. So we learn together about what actually worked or not. I'm quite comfortable with the fact that we're selling stuff. And I think we should be comfortable with that fact as well. We need a, our client products to be chosen over something else. And always ask your client to see that. Some clients don't even get that from the sales department, but this is a bit dysfunctional and always ask the results and, and probably you would feel very rewarded if you do. So to put words into your mouth, it sounds like you get a kick out of the game, out of the puzzle, solving the puzzle of it all. Exactly. That's how you, you start really understand, understanding how everything works. So obviously you publish a little bit on LinkedIn. People can look you up, Julien Normand. Do you publish anywhere else on the internet? No, not very much on Twitter these days. So LinkedIn is the best place. Well, may you keep publishing. I like that you've got a little cheeky creative bent to the hooks of your essays, articles, carousels. Keep that up, push it further. And I uh, appreciate you joining me here on Sweathead today, Julian. Thanks so much, Mark. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend, subscribe to our newsletter, find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Sweathead. And if you're interested in finding out about our strategy, memberships, company training, or books, visit sweathead.com. Whoop, whoop.